We're in the book of Philippians chapter 2. We've been working through the book of Philippians chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeing what it is that the Apostle Paul wrote for us to learn and grow. We, we find this remarkable theme of joy throughout the book of Philippians, despite the reality that the Apostle Paul himself is sitting in prison, and despite the reality that the church that he is writing to, that they are experiencing severe persecution. And yet, as Paul writes, he seeks to tell them of the joy that he is experiencing within his own heart because he sees God at work, and in that, he rejoices. Come whatever troubles may come, he sees God at work. He sees the gospel of Christ going forth, so he rejoices in that. As we have come into chapter 2, we find a bit of a transition in Paul's writing as he it begins to instruct the Philippian church about, okay, now, now we, I'm rejoicing in what God is doing. Now, this is how I would like you to behave as you live out the gospel within your life. He gave the command at the end of chapter 1 to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now he begins to tell for us what that looks like. As we saw in the first few verses of chapter 2, Paul called us to Christian unity, to Christ-like humility, and to an others-oriented service, and now he is about to give us an example of what it looks like to live out these Christian virtues, and is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. But before we, we get into that, I, I don't know if you have ever considered or studied the anatomy of the human eye. It's a remarkable thing. The way that God has made the eye, you know, it's, it's, it's been called the window to the soul, right? I don't know if you've heard that phrase, the eyes are the window to the soul. We can communicate so much with just our eyes. We can communicate even with things that we wish we were not communicating even with our eyes. Whether we're lying, there's tells in our eyes if we lie, if we're nervous, if we're being uh, really focused on a particular task or even being flirtatious or among other things, there's these different things that our eyes can communicate. Whatever direction that you are looking, there is some level of interest in that. And so we see, okay, their eyes give a clue about what we are thinking or feeling in a given moment. But if we were to examine even just a little bit closer and consider how does the eye work, we would find some incredible things. We would see that there's the, the light that, that is just bouncing off the world around us from the sun. It reflects down into our eyes, and there's the cornea of our eyes. That's the outer layer. And it reflects light through our pupils, which then shines the light through a lens that is behind our pupils back into the retina, which then sends signals to our brain for us to see. And as that whole process works, it's, it's a complicated process, and in fact, it is so complex that scientists say that if we were to try to reproduce the function of the retina, that as it receives the light signals and communicates with the brain, if we were trying to, to replicate that function, we would need a computer chip that would be half a million times larger than the human retina. It would require 300 watts of power and require even its own cooling system is how much power would be needed 
to do the same function with computer chips. And yet God has made the retina to do what it does by weighing less than a gram, occupying 0.0003 square inches of your body, operating on 0.001 watts of power. It's amazing. We have this incredible thing within our own bodies that is just functioning at an incredible level, and yet the closer we look at it, the more amazing things that we would find. If we were to break apart the different aspects of the eye, we continue to find new and more amazing and incredible facts about how God has made us. Well, I say all of that by way of analogy for our passage here today. The passage that we are about to study, the more that we would study it, the more amazing and incredible things that we would find. This passage is considered one of the greatest Christological passages in all of the scriptures. Sadly, there have been many that have abused this passage over the years to communicate things that are contrary to what God's Word clearly teaches. But the truth and the detail that it does contain is absolutely marvelous. It is so beautiful, and the closer that you look at it, the more amazing and incredible it becomes as we continue to study it. The further you drill down, the more amazing things can be discovered within the text itself. And so because of that very reality, we're going to take a a slightly more zoomed-in approach over the next several weeks of this passage. Today is just kind of going to be a little bit of an overview of this text and of this passage. And then the next two weeks, we're going to drill down a little bit more and look at it in more detail because of just the sheer amount of beauty and wealth and, and depth that there is communicated in just this one short passage. So we don't normally do things this way where we kind of give that overview and drill down on passages like this, but we're going to do that simply because of the richness of this passage here today. What we will find as we see in this text is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship by virtue of being both the exemplar par excellence for us, for our lives, And because he is the high exalted Lord over all. He is worthy of our worship because he is both the example par excellence for our lives. Because he is the high exalted Lord over all. So let's begin to look at our text. And again, we're just going to give an overview of this text as we move through things today. And in future weeks, we will, Lord willing, drill down a little bit deeper and see more of the richness of what is here. So let's pick things up in Philippians 2, verse 5, where Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Of course, Paul has been instructing the church. He's been seeking to have them have unity amongst themselves. If we go back into verse One, we see that that Paul desires that because there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, that he desires to see certain realities lived out in the life of the church. He desires that they have unity. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. He desires to see that unity, Christian unity amongst the body of Christ. It is unity that is grounded in the truth of scriptures. We don't compromise on those things. 
but it is unity that is grounded in the love that we are to have for others. That where Scripture does not speak, we have charity with one another as we approach different things within our lives. So we're called to unity. We're called to humility in the midst of this. As verse 3 communicates, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. We're to be humble as we live the Christian life, viewing others as more significant than ourselves. And we talked about that last week. And then he says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're to be having a, a mindset, a focus that we live not to serve ourselves, but to serve others. And so there are those three things that Paul stresses, the, the humility, the unity, and the service for others. And now he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or some of your translations may say, which was also in Christ Jesus, and I actually think that that is a, a more preferable translation, that this was the mind that was within Christ Jesus. And I say that because of, of what Paul is about to expound for us about how Jesus Christ lived these things out. Paul says, I want you to be unified. I want you to be humble. I want you to serve others. He says, this is what Christ did. This is how Christ lived, and, and so he gives that for us. But he calls us, this is how you are to live. Christ lived this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to emulate him. There are many passages of Scripture that, that call us to follow Jesus. We are to be his disciples, to be living after the pattern of life that, that he lived. That's why on our banner here we have this the statement, not only are we to believe in Christ, but we're to follow after Him. Ephesians chapter, two, or chapter 5, verse 2 says, To walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered also for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. 1 Peter 4.1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. 1 John 2.6, 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then Jesus Christ himself said that it is enough to be, for a, the disciple to be like his teacher. He said that in Matthew 5, uh, 10, 25. And so we have this whole testimony of Scripture from instruction from Jesus Christ Himself, from the Apostle Paul, from Peter, from John, these, these different individuals that are all trying to point us in the same direction. That we are to live lives seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be following after the example that Jesus Christ has given for us. And so Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. That phrase, have this mind, it, some translations say have this attitude amongst yourselves. That's, that's really what it communicates, this, this thinking that is just a part of your being. It's, it speaks of an attitude, a disposition. It's our outlook on life. Right? This is how we are to approach life. 
following the example that Jesus gave us. Our, we are to approach life in a particular way. Well, what is that to look like? Paul begins to give that to us. Mention the attitude of unity, the mind of humility, the mind of, of service. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the perfect example, the perfect example of that. And we're going to see that as we move through this text. That Jesus Christ was perfectly united with the Father in His design and plan for redemption. There was no debate between the Father and the Son. There was no animosity, no angst in the midst of that where it was just like, you know, God, you want me to do this, but I'm, I don't really feel like doing that. No, there was perfect unity within the Trinity where the will of the Father, the will of the Son, the will of the Spirit were perfectly united together. There was no disagreement. And the Son was perfectly united as He willingly submitted to the Father as He entered into creation and died on the cross. Christ displayed the ultimate and perfect act of humility by condescending to humanity. And this, this is really a truly mind-blowing reality that, that we could never even fully grasp the significance of this. There's, there's no illustration that would ever do it complete and full justice you know, one time I was trying to, trying to help some children understand this concept, and I was like, you know, try to imagine that there's a colony of ants, and, and you're trying to go down to those ants, and you want to save those ants from destruction, and so you yourself became an ant so that you could communicate with them and, and show them the way. And, and that's, it might give us a little bit of a picture, but it still does not do it justice to what Jesus Christ did. I mean, we're talking about God, the, the creator, the sustainer of the universe. And yet he entered into his creation, taking on the form of humanity. The ultimate act of humility. And we see that Christ also displayed the ultimate act of service towards others in his sacrifice. Jesus walked the earth and as he did so, he made it clear that he did not come as a political revolutionary. Either that's not why he came. There's many that thought that's why he was there. They sought to make him king. He's like, no, that's, that's not why I am here. He didn't come to set up his earthly kingdom and, and reign as king at that time. He didn't come to be served, but as he said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he came in service to humanity to surrender his life. The greatest act of service. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then as we are begot to step through the next several verses, verses 6 through 11, we have just this masterful, beautiful passage where Paul details out specifically what this attitude was. And this passage is very interesting. You know, scholars believe that this was actually one of the early hymns of the faith in the church. When, when the church gathered together and as they sang hymns of praise to God together, they believed that, that this was one of those hymns that they sang. This, this beautiful passage that details what Christ did. Rich theologically 
just such great theological depth in this great Christological hymn. Well, we could break this down into to two parts. We would see the, the humiliation of Christ, and then we would see the exaltation of Christ. So first we have the humiliation of Christ, and we see that in verses 6 through 8. And these, these verses are often referred to as the seven downward steps of Christ. It wasn't simply that Jesus just took on flesh and died on the cross, but with each downward step He took, it highlights more and more the, how astoundingly humiliating this would have been for the Creator of the universe. So again, we're going to just do this overview, and we're going to look at these seven downward steps that Christ took, and then the steps that, that God took to exalt Him higher above anyone else. So verse 6, we have the first step. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is an oft-debated passage. The, the, the phrasing and the terminology that Paul uses in this text is truly difficult to wrestle with. Uh, just different translations render it in different ways because of that reality. Some translations say he, that he did not count it robbery to be equal with God. And here in the ESV, I said it, it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held onto. So though it's difficult to wrestle with the particulars of, of the, the language and the terminology that Paul used in this text, the main thrust of what Paul is communicating is that Jesus Christ did not view the fact of His divinity. He did not view the fact that He is God as something to be used and abused for His own selfish purposes. It wasn't something to be grasped and held tight onto for the sake of just Himself. But rather, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the first step that Jesus Christ took in his humiliation. In humility, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held tight onto for himself. But on the contrary, we get into verse 7. But on the contrary, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself is the second step down, this emptying. Now, that phrase is, again, another difficult thing to wrestle with, and we're going to drill down more on this in future weeks, so uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it right now. This, the concept of emptying, again, that, that's something that has been abused by individuals that would seek to teach things that are contrary to the Word of God, so we want to understand what it means biblically, and we're going to spend the time on that, Lord willing, next week. But we have to answer the question, what did he empty himself of? The scriptures are clear that when Jesus Christ came in human flesh, that he was still truly God, right? Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man and separately united in one person forever. Well, how do we understand this, this emptying? Like, what is actually going on in the text here? And so, we, we will address that more deeply next week, but, but just for now, 
I believe that this is referring to that he set aside the independent use of his attributes. He set aside the independent use of his attributes in order to subject himself to the will of the Father as he lived out his time on earth. He was still God, and he still could use his divine attributes, but he didn't use them selfishly, and he didn't use them independently, but used them in submission to the Father's will. So he set aside, he emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. That was the second step down that he took in his humiliation. Third, the third step, he took the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And that word servant could be literally rendered slave. Jesus Christ took the form of a slave. Think of the irony of that. Jesus Christ, the creator, the one who made all things, subjecting himself, taking on the form of a servant, the form of a slave. The one who has ultimate authority and power, submitting himself to servitude. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing that, that truly, truly defies our minds, of, of trying to wrap our minds around how this could even happen. That Christ could take the form of a slave. And yet he did so. He entered into our world willing to go to great lengths to save us. And that's what we find. As, as see, we continue on this, this stepping down of this humiliation of Christ. He, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And now we find in, in verse 7 as well, being found in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ took on humanity. He took on human flesh. Flesh that was subject to all of the things of this world that we are subject to. Jesus Christ, as he lived out his time on this earth, he grew tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. Sure, there were things that happened throughout his life, even as he was growing up, where he would have had injuries, where he would have cuts or bruises or, or maybe even broken bones perhaps. And as he grew, and of course we know as he died on the cross, that he shed his blood. The scripture says that he was crushed, pierced for our transgressions. But he was in the likeness of men. He was human form. And this was necessary for us. This was necessary for us. Jesus Christ could not have been our perfect substitute if he was not a human being. And yet to take on that flesh was a tremendous act of humility before us. So that is the fourth step down as he continues on in his humiliation. And but he doesn't stop there, it continues on in verse 8, step 5, and being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Again, Jesus Christ, the ruler and the king of all the universe, king of kings, lord of lords, becoming obedient, obedient to the Father. Jesus Christ, as he was in the Garden of Eden, himself said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. As he wrestled with the agony that he knew that he was about to face. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. But it wasn't just any obedience. This was an obedience that would cost him his life. The sixth step down became obedience to the point of death where he died on that cross. Taking the punishment for our sin. And that's what he goes on to say, that seventh step. He became obedient, and then Paul, to emphasize the point of, of what is actually going on here, is, as Paul continues to display this, explain for us these seven steps down, as, as Jesus Christ continues to humiliate himself, a willful humiliation as he acts in obedience. It's not just that he gets found in the likeness of man, that he, he becomes obedient. No, he, he becomes obedient to death, even the death on the cross the most humiliating and gruesome death that has ever been experienced by any man on the face of the earth. Jesus Christ died, but not any old death. He died on the cross. Mocked, abused, the death of criminals, condemned to die for crimes that he did not commit. doesn't get any lower than this. Now, this is why we sing some of the songs that we sing. You know, I think of that one hymn, And Can It Be, Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It is amazing. It is incredible. That Jesus would die, this, this humiliation that he would endure on our behalf. The ultimate humiliation, the ultimate act of service. But Jesus Christ did not stay dead. Jesus' body did not stay in the grave. His body did not experience decay. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ was resurrected once again, and now God has highly exalted him. And now, as Paul explains this, there's a great passage describing what Jesus Christ endured and what he went through as he was willing to condescend himself to us, to come down to us, to save us from our sin. And just think for a moment, by the way, the, the wretchedness of our own sin, that this is what it took to save us. Right, this, is, this is what it took for Christ to redeem us. And yet now, God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul gives this marvelous passage describing the greatness that has been ascribed to Christ because of what he has accomplished. There were those seven steps down. Now let's look at these steps up. The, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. He has exalted him. He has given him a, a prominent place, a place of honor, a place of glory, a place of reverence. Scriptures say that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He has seated down, seated down at the right hand of God the Father on high. He has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. Because he was willing to subject himself to this, this humiliation that is indescribable. Right? We can't even begin to try to illustrate it fully and to try to do justice to what it was that Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Because of what he did. Now God exalts Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that, that whoever seeks to exalt himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles, humbles himself will be exalted. And that is true in the ultimate and perfect sense in the person of Jesus Christ. He's given him the name that is above every name. There is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. You know, this is why it is so awful and so bad when, when people use the name of Jesus Christ as a, as a cuss word to communicate disgust. This is the highest name this is the most beautiful and, and wonderful name in all the universe. And yet we would drag it through the mud. Now oh, this is a glorious name. This is a beautiful name. The name of Jesus the Christ. And we know that at that name, the book of Revelation teaches us about what is to come. And when Jesus Christ does return, and He will return, and when he does set up his kingdom on this earth, because Scripture is clear about that reality, that that is going to happen. And Christ will reign in truth and righteousness and justice. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We make no mistake about that. That he is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, it's been said that, that we really only have two choices in life. We can bow before him as Lord now, or we will bow one day before the throne when he comes as judge. So we have responsibility to our Lord. We do. Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. He has suffered greatly to bring us to God, and now he is highly exalted. And you know, this, this is really the, the crescendo point of the book of Philippians. You know, everything that Paul has written up to this point, it really leads into this passage as it just exalts the name of Christ. And as the rest of this book is about to unfold, it, it flows out of this passage of who Jesus Christ is. All right, we saw earlier in, in chapter 1 that, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Well, this is the one who is doing that. This is that Christ who works in us. 
This is the Christ that Paul rejoices is being proclaimed. Even though he is in prison, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. This is the Christ that Paul desired would be honored in his life or his death. This is the Christ that Paul desires to be with, for that would be far better. This is the Christ that Paul calls us to proclaim to others. And this is the Christ that Paul identified as it being for his sake that we have believed and suffer. And this is the Christ that Paul will later say in chapter 3, that he is willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of knowing him. And this is that Christ. This is that Christ. The one he calls us to proclaim. And this, this is why Paul is so focused on the gospel. So focused on the proclamation of the gospel of grace. This is why Paul desires to make, to know him and make him known. Because God has exalted him. There is no greater message, no greater person, no greater being, no greater purpose, no greater ambition than to know Jesus Christ, to be made like Him, and then to one day be with Him in glory. We serve a beautiful, tremendous, risen Savior who is exalted. Of course, we are not capable of imitating Christ perfectly, I mean, this is why he had to die in the first place. Right? This is why he came, because we are sinful. But Jesus Christ suffered on that cross for our sins, died, rose again, that we would be like him, that we would learn to walk in newness of life. And really, this is what the gospel of Christ is all about. As we are redeemed from our sins, saved, from the wrath of God. We are called into walking in newness of life and he teaches us, he strengthens us. His grace continues to work within us. It's not immediate, we don't become perfect, but he stretches us and grows us over time. And it's a wonderful thing. And really, you know, as we close our service today, we're going to observe the Lord's table here this morning. And you know, this, this table is a, is a memorial for us. And it's a memorial of Jesus Christ, this person, this, this one that we have studied, the one who humiliated himself. And, and these, these elements that we are going to observe, they're, they're a picture of that humiliation. And the instructions that Jesus and Paul gives us is to remember the sacrifice of Christ, the humiliation that he endured on our behalf. Paul says that we proclaim the Lord's death, looking forward to his return. And so as we do observe this, this today, just reflect on who our Lord is. The one who humbled himself, obedient to death, even death on the cross, and yet now is highly exalted. And one day we will see him in all of his splendor and all of his beauty and all of his glory when he returns for us once again. We remember His grace and His mercy. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You so much for the grace of Christ. Thank You for His humiliation. Lord, we are wretched sinners who rightly deserve Your 
your condemnation. And yet, Lord, you are rich in mercy. You have sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. And you have exalted him. You have exalted the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we live in the midst of a world that is in rebellion against you, but there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We do look forward to that day. But Lord, in the meantime, I pray that, that we could be submitting to you as our Lord even now in this life, recognizing that we need your grace, that we can't do this on our own. We can't, we, we can't do anything on our own, Lord. We are needing to be wholly dependent upon you and your grace. But Lord, with the confidence that he who began a good work in us will complete it, that it is you that works within us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And so even now as we live our lives, I pray that you would work within us, strengthen us, stretch us, grow us, that we may walk worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in chapter 1. Lord, I do thank you for these elements that we are going to observe this morning as well. Thank you for the blood of Christ, his body that was broken for us. I pray, Lord, it is so easy for us to, to move through the motions when we approach the Lord's table, but you have given us as a gift to your church that we would be continually reminded of the gospel, that we can't live righteously on our own accord, but we need the righteousness of Christ provided through the death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we partake of these elements, may we be reminded of that afresh and anew, that we need the gospel. I thank you for all that you've done for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.